Before we begin the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. It is on their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this event, which is co-sponsored by Sydney Ideas and the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotions, Europe, 1100 to 1800. Uh, my name's Andrew Lynch. I'm the director of that centre. It's my pleasure to be introducing tonight Professor Acorn's lecture, which opens the conference, Emotions in Legal Practices. The ARC Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotions is a large universities collective that researches how societies have understood, experienced, expressed and performed emotions in pre-modern Europe and how this long history influences the contemporary world, especially Australia. The centre is based at the University of Western Australia and it has major nodes at the University of Queensland, Melbourne, Adelaide and here in Sydney. So as a collective, our centre creates and fosters links between Australian humanities researchers in the emotions, a network of international institutions and universities in Europe, the UK, North America, and a broad set of industry partners. Uh, we have academic activities and publications, of course. We also present, present many popular education, performance, and public outreach activities. And we provide an environment and specialist training for the younger generation of researchers, postgraduates and postdoctoral fellows whom it's part of our mission to train for the future. So tonight's lecture will introduce a two-day conference sponsored by the Centre on Emotions in Legal Practices, Historical and Modern Attitudes Compared. <clears throat> and this one follows an event that we co-sponsored in Scotland last year at St Andrews, Emotions in the Courtroom. That earlier gathering concentrated on medieval and early modern courts. This one takes the discussion from the past right up to the present day. The program includes presentations and discussions on many areas where emotions have and still really mattered and are often found problematical in the procedures and outcomes of a legal and justice system. For example, in the giving of evidence and its reception by juries, in the emotional styles of courtroom proceedings, including the influence of audiences, both those present and those reading about courts in, and, and the law in cultural representations and in the media. In judgments of offenders' remorse, in assessing injury, in sentencing and prison punishment, in relation to judges and juries' perception of their roles as dispassionate and disinterested observers, and overall in the problems of maintaining a good relationship between rationality and emotion in the administration of law and the pursuit of justice. All of these emotional elements with many others help make up the history and the ongoing nature of what one presentation in this conference calls the grand narrative of the law. It's a narrative in which the past in the form of tradition, precedent and ideology speaks strongly to the present, and one where history, 
theory and practice are very closely interrelated. So I congratulate the main organisers, Dr Kimberley Joy Knight and Dr Meredith Bailey, on creating the opportunity for academic researchers and legal practitioners of many kinds to consider this interesting and important material. And I want to thank Meredith Hall of Sydney Ideas for helping us share this opening lecture with tonight's audience. The lectures by a distinguished guest of the conference, Professor Annalise Acorn. Annalise Acorn is Professor of Law at the University of Alberta. <clears throat> She's the author of Compulsory Compassion, a Critique of Restorative Justice from Vancouver, University of British Columbia Press in 2004. In 2009, she was an HLA Hart Fellow at the Oxford Centre for Ethics and Legal Philosophy at University College, Oxford. She's been a visiting professor at University of Michigan Law School, University of Siena, Department of Economic Law, and University of Hawaii, Richardson School of Law, and she's a frequent visitor at the Einstein Forum in Potsdam, Germany. Professor Acorn's main area of research interest is the theory of the emotions in the context of conflict and justice. And from 2010 to 14, she was co-editor of Passions in Context, International Journal of the History and Philosophy of the Emotions. She's published numerous articles in journals such as the Oxford Journal of Legal Studies, Osgoode Hall Law Review, Valparaiso Law Review, and the UCLA Women's Law Journal. And in 1998 to 99, she was the president of the Canadian Association of Law Teachers. In the same year, a Macala Research Professor, and more recently, from 2014 to 15, Visiting Fellow at All Souls College, Oxford, where she worked on a book on resentment and responsibility. So, Annalise Acorn tonight, her topic is punishment as help and the blaming emotions. Please welcome her. Andrew and I also would uh, like to extend very heartfelt thanks to uh, Dr. Kimberly Joy Knight and Dr. Meredith Bailey um, for their wonderful organization. It looks like an amazing uh, program and I'm very much looking forward to it so thank you very much. I'm going to speak this evening about the moral status of the blaming emotions, emotions like anger, resentment, indignation, and outrage. And I'm going to take the view that when these emotions are responses to real responsible wrongdoing, to real moral violation, that these emotions are vital to our existence as moral beings and that they express our nature as moral, uh, as moral beings. Um, when we're talking about real responsible wrongdoing, I would be the first, per the first to acknowledge that there is way too much pointless anger in the world. Um, this morning, I was in my hotel room and I got up from the desk and whacked my head on the TV that's positioned just above the desk and I was like, Rah! Um, totally pointless, stupid anger, although I don't know why they put it there, but anyway, um, certainly there's, there's way too much anger, but nevertheless, I'm going to take the view that, that as a response to real moral violation, that it's vital. 
that, the, that these blaming emotions are vital. I'm next going to ask the question, which is a separate question, um, should these blaming emotions have a place in the criminal process? Should they be a part of the, uh, a part of criminal punishment? And the yes answer to the first question, or, 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 or to take the view that they do have this vital role in our moral lives, doesn't necessarily yield a yes answer to the second question about whether they should be part of criminal punishment. I think that there are aspects of the relation between the criminal offender and the state, aspects of the roles through which the criminal process is structured that potentially make it too morally problematic for those emotions to actually be expressed in those relationships. But I want to take the view, nevertheless, that the criminal sentence itself should be understood as an expression of society's affective blame of the wrong done, that the sentence itself should speak for society's anger and indignation towards serious criminal wrongdoing. Now, this position that I'm taking is very much contrary to what I think is the prevailing view in certainly the Progressive Academy, that the blaming emotions are best eradicated in both life and in law. But I'm going to suggest that if we as a society are not angry at the murderer, if we're not outraged by the rapist, if we don't resent the fraudster, if we're not indignant toward the batterer, then while we may have good reason to warehouse, to confine, to incapacitate, to treat, to train or otherwise manage those offenders, that we do not have the right to punish insofar as we understand punishment to be the infliction of deserved hard treatment. So what I'm claiming here is, that, is then that there's this kind of intrinsic connection between punishment as, if we understand punishment as deserved hard treatment and these kinds of feelings of affective blame. Am I coming in and out of the mic? Is it annoying? I feel like I'm coming in. I'm okay? Okay, great. Thank you. So my thinking on this is very much influenced by philosopher Peter Strawson. Peter Strawson wrote a famous essay called Freedom and Resentment uh, in 1961, the year I was born. And in this essay, Strawson makes a number of really interesting moves, and I want to kind of just incorporate a lot of Strawson by reference, but one of the things that he does that I, th that I think is really important is in talking about criminal punishment, in talking about our legal responsibility practices, Strawson thinks that they really derive from our interpersonal moral responses to wrongdoing. And so he thinks that in thinking about, in thinking about criminal punishment, we, we should always be kind of going back and forth to think about how we react to wrongdoing interpersonally and then kind of flipping that into the criminal context. Um, so I want to borrow that move from him and I want to borrow another really important move from Strawson, which is Strawson's um, comparing and contrasting of, of two kind of attitudes that we can take towards other people. And one of them is the reactive attitude, and the other is the objective attitude. And for Strawson, we take the reactive attitude when we consider other people to be responsible moral beings, when we consider them to, them to have acted responsibly, and we take the objective attitude towards them when we consider them as things to be managed, incentivized, 
or controlled. So because they, so there, there are kind of two different emotional sort of registers associated with those two attitudes. And the reactive attitude, because it involves these thoughts about responsibility, it includes what I, what I think of as these responsibility-assuming emotions, and Strawson lists them as things like resentment, anger, forgiveness, gratitude, and indignation, okay? So the kinds of responsibilities that involve thoughts about the other person being responsible. The objective attitude can have emotional uh, emotions in it as well, but those, and those emotions include pity, contempt, grief, disgust, and as Strawson says, even some kinds of love, but the, but the objective attitude doesn't include these kinds of reactive emotions like resentment, anger, and indignation. So Strawson writes, the object, this is a wonderful picture, a photo of Strawson that hangs in the Winter Common Room in University College, Oxford. The objective attitude cannot include the range of reactive feelings and attitudes which belong to involvement or participation with others in interpersonal human relationships. It cannot include resentment, gratitude, forgiveness, anger, or the sort of love which two adults can sometimes be said to feel reciprocally for each other. The reactive attitude then is this participatory, engaged, involved attitude, whereas the objective attitude is this kind of managerial, strategic, detached attitude. So Strawson says, if your attitude towards someone is wholly objective, then though you may fight him, you cannot quarrel with him, and though you may talk to him, even negotiate with him, you cannot reason with him, you can at most pretend to quarrel or to reason with him. So, kind of incorporating all that, kind of without really giving philosophical argumentation for it, I want to take the view that when we confront a wrongdoer, by which again, I mean someone who is guilty of genuine moral violation, when we confront them with that emotionally engaged attitude, that reactive participatory involved stance, when we, then we meet them as fellow moral beings and respect them as responsible agents in a way that we do not when we confront them with the detached, objective, managerial type of attitude. And I think that this, as Strawson suggests, that this involved participatory attitude simply is constituted, is expressed through those kinds of reactive emotions. So let me see if I can support some of that. Let me begin by telling, uh, giving a little more detail about what I've called the prevailing view in the academy um, that anger should be eliminated in both interpersonal relations and in state punishment. And I am, I think, in a room full of historians, and I am absolutely not a historian at all, but I'm going to try anyways at least to situate some of these very... Um, very contemporary ideas about the need to eliminate anger within their within somewhat within the history of ideas and what you what you immediately realize when you start to try to do that is you need to situate ideas about anger in relation to ideas about revenge so Martha Nussbaum um, 
has just come out with a book, 2016. The book is called Anger and Forgiveness, Resentment, Generosity, and Justice. It was the sort of culmination of her Locke lectures at All Souls in 2014. And it is a sweeping rejection of the blaming emotions in law and in life. She leaves a little bit of space for something that she calls transitional anger, the anger that just sort of lets you know that something is wrong, but that that anger should be gotten rid of as soon as possible, but can, can have a little bit of value. Nussbaum cites Aeschylus's Orestia as authority for the view that the proper response to wrongdoing is to eschew anger and to dispassionately turn the matter over to the law. The law ought also to respond dispassionately, not with institutional anger, but in the most socially productive way possible. So from Nussbaum then, when we encounter wrongdoing, um, the thing to do is to turn matters over to the law, which should deal with them without anger and in a forward-looking spirit. So Nussbaum, um, has always been very admiring of and very much influenced by the Stoics and Seneca in particular. And so she draws very much on Seneca's De Ira on anger, written in around 50 AD. And if, uh, when you read that, you will see that it is one long rant against anger. Um, so, He's, uh, Seneca thinks that anger can never be any good. It's always terrible. Um, of course, again, as historians, many of you will have know more than I do about, about the context um, that he was living in with Nero and everything else and how tremendously dangerous anger was at that point. But anyway, let's, he says, uh, you cannot tell whether this vice anger is more execrable or more disgusting. Um, so it looks as though Seneca and Nussbaum are, are, are pretty much on the same page. As I say, Nussbaum is citing from Seneca all the time, but they take very, very different views about revenge, okay? Because inasmuch as Seneca is, is totally against anger, he's not at all against revenge. Seneca thinks that revenge as payback can be very much a duty. Revenge is a dish best served cold, but you have to serve it. Um, so Seneca writes, uh, what then, you ask, will the good man not be angry if his father is murdered, his mother is outraged before his eyes? No, he will not be angry, but he will avenge them or protect them. Uh, my father will be murdered, then I will defend him. He has been slain, then I will avenge him, not because I'm grieved, but because it is my duty. And we can see here, or maybe, I don't know, I love this line from Adam Smith good old stiff upper lip Adam Smith even calls Seneca that great preacher of insensibility. Um, so we might think that when, when you look at Nussbaum, you sort of think, okay, she's kind of the same as Seneca here because she's having this notion of turning it over to the law as something that sort of slots into the same place as taking revenge for Seneca. Don't get mad, get even. But unlike Seneca, Nussbaum rejects both anger and revenge, and she rejects them for the same reason. She views both as illogical. Nussbaum follows Aristotle's understanding of anger 
and revenge as intimately connected. So in the rhetoric, Aristotle says, Aristotle defines anger this way, anger may be defined as an impulse accompanied by pain to a conspicuous revenge for a conspicuous slight. Um, so in this Aristotelian view, anger and revenge are inextricably connected and for Nussbaum, the problem with both, the reason why they're both illogical is that they strive to do the impossible. They're both trying to undo the harm that's in the past, and it can't be done. So for Nussbaum, as I say, both anger and revenge are bad because they're both illogical. Um, so let me turn now, let me, let me leave Nussbaum and turn now to uh, Hannah Pickard and Nicola Lacey. Um, Pickard and Lacey have written a couple of recent articles, one, both in the Oxford Journal of Legal Studies, 2013, um, called From the Consulting Room to the Courtroom, and then another one in 2015 called To Blame or to Forgive. And they, he, too, are also arguing that these emotions have no legitimate place in punishment. They're less concerned than Nussbaum is about what kind of place they have within interpersonal relations. But basically, they, they are all sort of saying that we need to that that the more we can eliminate these kind this kind of affective blame, the better. So they take their cue from the model of psychotherapy. Hannah Pickard is, in fact, a therapist, and argue that the task for punishment is to abolish affective blame while still holding the wrongdoer responsible. So they want to sever the links between these links that, that Strawson thinks are quite key between responsibility, resentment, anger, and punishment, and build new links between punishment, responsibility, respect, and compassion. So they write, punishment, uh, oh sorry, hang on, where did I, uh, I beg your pardon, I forgot uh, this, uh, with respect to punishment, then Nussbaum is saying that it all needs to be forward looking, and, and so she writes, it all depends, with respect to punishment, it all depends on what helps people. Sorry, I forgot that slide. Then we go over to Lacey and Pickard. Punishment can proceed not out of or in connection with, uh, aff with sorry, not out of or in connection with affective blame, but hand in hand with concern, respect, and compassion. Now, Lacey and Pickard actually go further to suggest that punishment should take place that the correct affective stance for punishment is one of forgiveness. Here they're different from, from uh, Nussbaum because Nussbaum actually objects to forgiveness because she finds it too potentially humiliating um, of the offender. But Lacey and Pickard really think that there should be um, forgiveness in punishment and not just afterwards. So they say, um, just as it's possible to see the criminal process and execution as uh, execution of punishment as a form of institutionalized resentment, that's how a lot of people are, are interpreting Strawson, so too it's possible to see it as offering institutionalized forgiveness. Um, so, and, and they don't want to say that you forgive after you punish. Rather, we suggest it is to punish with forgiveness to forswear vengeance and affective blame in punishing, not just afterwards. 
So the approach, the thing that this approach is both most consistent with liberal values of democracy and also most helpful to offenders in construction, constructing a redemption script, a foundation for a new identity as a non-offender. So Lacey and Pickard say, you know, this, this argument may seem so radical as to beggar belief. And while it may be radical, what I want to point out is that it's definitely not new, okay? I think that this, this idea that we see both in Lacey and Pickard and in Nussbaum is grounded in this notion that punishment needs to be help, okay? The idea is at least as old as Plato's, so let me take a look at what he has to say about it. In the Gorgias, Socrates argues that wrongdoing can be sort of voluntary and yet not autonomous for the wrongdoer. What do I mean by that? That in, in doing wrong, one is always doing something that one doesn't really want to do. And so, of course, famously also, for Socrates, even as he's drinking the hemlock, it's much better to have wrong done to you than to do wrong. But the reason that you might do wrong anyway is it has to do with this kind of misapprehension of your own good. And Socrates conceptualizes this in the Gorgias as a sickness of the soul. And it's not the kind of sickness that vitiates responsibility. Okay, it's not like insanity, where we would say you're not responsible for, for your wrongdoing, but it's a sickness nonetheless that obscures one's own understanding of what one really wants. And so on Socrates' view, a person, will run, a person who's done wrong will run to the judge as he would to the physician so that the disease of injustice may not be rendered chronic and become an incurable cancer of the soul. So Lacey and Pickard, I think, their view about the sort of, the, the kind of illness that causes wrongdoing is very, very similar, I think, to the, to the view that um, Socrates is expressing here as a sickness of the soul, only they're wrapping it in different kind of 21st century scientific um, wrapping. They speak of crime as resulting primarily from um, disorders of agency that involve wrongdoing or cause harm, such as certain personality disorders, impulse control disorders, and addictions. So sort of ailments of agency. Um, such that the person acts in a way that is not genu genuinely autonomous, and what you want to do with punishment is restore, to help them to restore that autonomy, to cure the ailment of agency, so that they can begin to act in accordance with their true interests. So Socrates puts the question to Polis, and justice punishes us and makes us more just and is the medicine of our vices, and predictably, Polis says, yes, Socrates. So we see this same idea of punishment as cure also later on in Aristotle, okay? Because when Aristotle is distinguishing between punishment and revenge, now we're back to the distinction between, between punishment and revenge, Aristotle is uh, taking the view that the way we differentiate the two is because punishment is for the sake of the person being punished, revenge for that of the punisher 
to satisfy his feelings. So here again, helpfulness to the offender is what is distinctive about punishment. Recall, as I said uh, a while ago, Aristotle's definition of anger relates anger directly to the desire for revenge. Anger may be defined as the impulse accompanied by pain to a conspicuous revenge for a conspicuous slight. So on, uh, on Aristotle's formulation, anger and revenge are correlates Anger seeks revenge, and the point of it is to satisfy anger. And punishment needs to be something altogether different. If anger is defined in terms of revenge and punishment is in opposition to revenge, then anger and punishment are here for Aristotle and 2016 for Nussbaum, as well as, I think, um, Lacey and Pickard, actually logically mutually exclusive. Let me jump ahead a few centuries to um, one of my favorite uh, essayists, one of my favorite writers of all time, Michel de Montaigne, in the 16th century. He also wrote an essay uh, entitled On Anger. And Montaigne writes, sorry, I didn't get this quite right. The production values on this PowerPoint are not great, but I can read it to you. There's no passion that so much transports men from the right judgment as anger. No one would demur upon punishing a judge with death who should condemn a criminal on account of his own collar. Why then should fathers and pedagogues be any more allowed to whip and chastise children in their anger? Tis no longer correction, but revenge. Chastisement is instead of physic to children, and would we endure a physician who would be animated against and enraged at his patient. So there's a lot going on here. First of all, notice how Montaigne collapses what we might call the guilt phase and the sentencing phase. He's arguing that since a judge should not rely on anger to decide questions of guilt or innocence, that anger in the meeting out of punishment is also wrong. Of course, the second idea doesn't necessarily follow from the first. We might think that it's absolutely key that a judge or jury or fact finder be completely dispassionate in the process of coming to a decision about whether or not the wrongdoer is guilty. And yet, we might still say that it would be, it would be all right once you've decided that they were guilty to feel anger about that. It's also a bit odd. We, we might want to know what besides anger is going to lead us to execute this judge who uses anger when making decisions. But with respect to, the just, to just punishment, Montaigne, like Plato, like Lacey and Pickard, like, like Nussbaum, thinks it has to have credible associations with cure. Now, one funny thing is that when you read Montaigne's essays, he can't stand doctors. He's always thinking that they're inflicting needless pain for pointlessly and that you should just, if you want to stay well, just stay away from doctors because all they're going to do is inflict pain on you. Anyway, along the lines of Aristotle, Montaigne seems to have thought that the pain inflicted by expressions of anger, resentment, and indignation have no curative purpose or power, and therefore that the expression of these emotions collapses into this notion of revenge as inimical to the legitimate purposes of punishment. Of course, we should remember, whoops, sorry. We should remember that avengers often use the language of pedagogy. 
Um, this is Shylock, of course, in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. The villainy you teach me I will execute, and it shall go hard, but I will better the instruction. The whole notion of teaching a lesson is, is a big part of the rhetoric of revenge. But let's leave that to the side um, and notice rather that in situating the ethics of punishment within these student-teacher, parent-child, physician-patient uh, kinds of relations, these thinkers are trying to give us an understanding of punishment as not just different from revenge, but as antithetical to revenge. Both parties are on the same side, so it makes no sense to think of the parent's helpful correction of the child as getting even. It makes even less sense to think of the surgeon's incision as taking revenge on the patient. So too, it should make no sense to think of punishment through just correction as a form of revenge. So let me just say, um, first, I want to agree, for the sake of argument, that, I think I actually do agree, that to be legitimate, punishment should be something different from revenge. And, I want to agree also that punishment should be intended to help and, and ideally should actually help the offender. So I'm okay with that too. But where I want to disagree uh, with all these thinkers is in the next two steps that they take. First, to say that anger is all about revenge. And second, that anger doesn't help. Let me take the first claim first, that anger and revenge are inextricably linked. The physician-patient relation is always the slam-dunk example for these. Socrates, Montaigne, they're all saying, and Lacey and Pickard, everybody's saying, you know, think about it in terms of doctor-patient. So let me take, uh, let me stick with um, that relationship for a moment, and let's consider a cardiac surgeon treating a morbidly obese patient, someone whose body mass index is in excess of 50 and who is in need of a coronary artery bypass graft. Now let's assume that in preoperative consultations this physician has gotten to know the patient a little bit and let's say that he presents himself as someone who just really likes a lot of good food and good wine. He takes responsibility for his overeating but he you know, hopes, he assumes, he hopes anyway that the miracles of modern science and publicly funded healthcare are going to keep it all going for him. And let's assume also that this physician has come to genuinely like this patient. Physician and patient now go into surgery, and the surgeon is having tremendous difficulty working around the buildup of fat surrounding the patient's heart. She and her team are trying to remove the fat so as to be able to work in the area, but as they do so, more fat seeps in, obscuring the view and the access to the arteries, making it extremely difficult to perform the surgery. Let's imagine that she gets angry with her anesthetized patient. Would we, as Montaigne asks, endure this physician should she become animated against and enraged at her patient? Probably not. We would probably point to the scientific consensus that anger is not helpful here that doctors ought not to blame patients for obesity because blame just instills shame, making it more difficult for them to lose weight. Still, there are a number of interesting things uh, that we could observe about this physician's anger. First of all, it stems from a belief, accurate or not, that the patient is culpably responsible for his illness. Uh, 
The notion that the physician-patient relation is anger-free, is, is free of affective blame, for the physician assumes that illness isn't the patient's fault. But once we bring that idea in, again, rightly or wrongly, once we bring that idea in that the patient is culpably responsible, the blaming emotions come rushing back in. Now, this physician may be angry about a number of things. She may be angry just that, that, that he's harming himself. She may be angry that the operation took her so long. She may be angry that she's, she thinks she should be getting paid more for the, uh, doing this kind of operation, and she's not. Um, but the second thing to notice is that even in all these details, the, this physician's anger is entirely consistent with the intention, with the desire, and the wholehearted effort to help the patient. And it may well be that if this patient forgets her professional boundaries and confronts this patient with her anger, if she actually quarrels with him, um, that she would do so in an attempt to jar him into an awareness of the physical reality of what his overeating is doing to the viability of his internal organs. She might even be trying to get him to feel compassion for her, compassion for what she went through in trying to help him, and possible that that might help him to overcome the kind of ailment of agency that he has that leads him to overeat. Third thing we can notice about this anger is that it has nothing to do with revenge. And while we might still agree with the prevailing view in the profession that the surgeon ought not to blame or get angry with the patient, we can still, I think, see that were the physician to express her anger, she might very well be respecting the patient in a way that she wouldn't be were she simply to recommend changes to his diet in a detached kind of way. So let's go now to the parent-child relationship. Um, this is another, this is another um, model for the anti-anger camp and this idea that punishment should not come from a blaming place. The idea that punishment should not come from a blaming place is a kind of staple of 21st century parenting advice to teach responsibility. Parents should explain clearly and rationally um, what's right and what's wrong. You should stipulate consequences for wrongdoing and consistently follow through. Affective blame is counterproductive. It instills toxic shame in the child, making it more difficult for her to develop a healthy sense of self and genuine good character. Okay. But wouldn't a mother who always punishes with this kind of affect detachment seems sometimes chillingly cold and aloof? Wouldn't there maybe be a bit of loneliness in the distance between the child and parent where the parent only ever punishes with the this kind of detached and never with affective blame? Might we not even read this parent as a diabolical avenger who is always ever so controlled in response to their child's misbehavior? getting even with the child by refusing ever to drop the pose of calm superiority. And when this detached kind of parenting style is propounded by professionals as the healthy way, are these professionals not also lending their authority to a particular style of cultural interaction, a style drawn perhaps from white Anglo, uh, from the white Anglo upper classes? 
Also, the mother who sees her child running into traffic gets angry at her child, partly out of sheer panic, but also out of a passionate desire to help the under child understand that she must not do that. Here again, the anger has nothing to do with revenge. And I would argue that potentially nothing other than the desperation in the furious mother's voice when she's punishing her child for running into traffic could better help the child learn that do not play in the traffic is a non-negotiable rule. So I've been arguing by counterexample. Let me try to give more conceptual philosophical argument. Holocaust survivor Jean Amery articulated the way in which resentment can seek and desire something entirely different from revenge. So Amery writes, in relation to the Holocaust, nowhere could the use talionis make less historical and moral sense than in this instance. Okay, but the complete rejection, you can't imagine how, how terrible it would be to actually want proportionate revenge in relation to the Holocaust, but the complete re the rejection of revenge, the acute awareness of the total sen senselessness in a case like the Holocaust of wanting to inflict reciprocal proportionate harm, does not mean that the reactive emotions have no moral role in responding to the wrong. So Emery writes, the social body is occupied merely with safeguarding itself and could not care less about a life that's been damaged. At the very best, it looks forward so that such things don't happen again. But my resentments are there in order that the crime become a moral reality for the criminal, in order that he be swept into the truth of his atrocity. So Amory's goal of making the atrocity a moral reality for the perpetrator resonates, I think, with Socrates' notion in the Gorgias that the unjust person who avoids punishment is the worst off of all. Surely the nasty perpetrator who never encounters the moral truth of his actions is worse off than the one who does. Amory's intuition is that the resentment of the victim and the indignation of others has an essential and a legitimate role in forcing that encounter. The expression of that emotion then as an invitation to participate in the human struggle towards moral mutuality has intrinsic value and can, as such, help the offender. Of course, the, offense, the offender needs to have some flicker of receptivity. He needs to be able to hear the resentment uh, um, in order to be swept into the truth of his wrongdoing. And the offender may not be receptive, but the expression of that resentment is an important first effort towards moral engagement. Let me see if I can now get some help from David Hume. Hume thought, interestingly, um, that one who did not have the capacity to make others feel their resentment was inferior in a way that disqualified them from relations of justice. I mean, this is sort of an interesting sort of moral category, the relation of justice. Obligations of justice did not, for Hume, exist between beings unless they were rough equals. And remarkably, Hume measured that equality by the capacity not just to feel resentment, but to make the other feel your resentment. So the mark of equality for all human beings lies for Hume, not in any attribute of the subject itself, but in a, in a relative, sorry, an emotional 
emotive relational capacity, the capacity to first feel an emotion grounded in claims of self, and then successfully to convey those feelings to others such that it elicits recognition. So the capacity to feel resentment, to express it, to have it register in the emotional consciousness of the target was for Hume a precondition for relations of justice. So he writes, were there a species of creature intermingled with man, so interesting that this is taking place all around the period of um, colonization. Were there a species of creature intermingled with man, which though rational were possessed of such inferior strength, both of body and mind, that they were incapable of resistance and could never upon the highest provocation make us feel the effects of their resentment. The necessary consequence, I think, is that we should be bound by the laws of humanity to give gentle usage to these creatures, but should not, properly speaking, lie under any restraint of justice with regard to them, nor could they possess any right or property exclusive of such arbitrary lords. Making the other feel one's affect of blame is a way not just of asserting then, but of proving the kind of equality that's required for relations of justice. It's the sting of anger when felt by its target that engages the moral relation. Let me try um, now another example. This is a story about a criminal defense counsel as we all know, the criminal justice system makes mistakes. Its most serious mistakes are, are when it um, finds an innocent person guilty, but it also makes mistakes in finding guilty people innocent. And, and this criminal lawyer is often asked, how can you defend those people? And he, doesn't, he, he believes in the honor of his profession. He knows that police sometimes overstep their authority that witnesses make mistakes, and so he feels perfectly justified in fighting hard for his clients and rig rigorously cross-examining every witness, relentlessly putting the prosecution to the strict proof of its case. And often, as a result of his skill and his know-how, his clients get off. And his guilty but acquitted clients routinely feel deeply grateful to him. They credit him with what they see as their own vindication, and that makes him angry. He rejects their gratitude. He's indignant about both the way that they've harmed other people and the way that they misinterpret their acquittal as exoneration. And so by way of antidote to his client's self-congratulation, he sits them down and gives them a hefty dose of affective blame. Under the dome of lawyer-client confidence, he denounces their conduct. He tells them they got a off entirely because of his skill and not at all because of their own innocence. He, he lets them know that they had better never do it again and in a perfect parody of therapy, he charges them his usual 500 an hour to listen to his anger. There will be no other consequences. He doesn't want revenge. He hopes and he believes that encountering his passionate face-to-face knowing affective blame will do the client good. And he hopes that he's going to inflict the suffering of critical self-reflection on the wrongdoer. Whatever else happens, the client cannot walk out of his office feeling supported in, his, in their moral complacency about their actions. So does this lawyer do wrong? Of course, there's a sense in which the lawyer acts outside of his professional role in doing this. He is, in a sense, too much of his 
unreserved human self in what's supposed to be a purely professional relation. But in having to confront the lawyer's anger, I think the wrongdoer is given at least some opportunity to understand the moral truth about their conduct. And I think that that could help. Let me give you one more example that I think exemplifies the expression of justified anger as um, this involved, engaged, participatory reaction to wrongdoing that seeks to engage the wrongdoer in moral mutuality. This is um, a, I'm gonna play you a clip from a YouTube video. Is, this is in relation to the um, police shootings of black men in the United States. This is a, a clip going back to um, July of this year. Um, lots has happened since then and lots is still even, even happening this week. But I want to sort of go back to uh, July. And on July 5th, 2016 in Baton Rouge, um, two white police officers shot and killed black, a black man by the name of Anton Sterling. And from the videos that were released by people on the scene, it really appears that he is that the police, two police officers, one is on his chest. It really appears that he's offering no resistance. He's, he, he does not appear to be a threat at all. And on the next day, July 6th, um, African-American uh, Cleveland, Ohio police officer, Nakia Jones, posted a video on her Facebook page articulating her response to the shooting of Sterling. I first heard this, uh, the, the audio of this video clip um, driving in my car at six o'clock in the evening. They played the entire thing on the CBC uh, National Radio News. Um, so, in the video, Jones explains her own familiarity with black violence uh, in African-American neighborhoods, as well as her own commitment to uphold her oath as a police officer to serve and protect, knowing that doing so involves risks to her life. In her very emotionally charged statement, Jones denounces gun violence, whether it's perpetrated by black youth or by white police officers, imploring Afri African-Americans in particular to put the guns down. But what she most passionately expresses her anger about is the hypocrisy of those police officers who, because of their racism, are a threat to the African-American communities they've sworn to serve and protect. So I'm going to play you here um, a fairly significant chunk of this. Nakia Jones. Um, my son came home from work today and he showed me a disturbing um, video about a young man that was shot and killed by police in uh, Louisiana. And it's so funny because my son wanted to go to college there. And I kept saying, I ain't feeling that or whatever. Um, what's interesting is to me is that the shooting involved a police officer. And I watched the video over and over and over and over and over again so that I wouldn't become judgmental because not only am I a mother of two African-American sons and I have African-American nephews and I have brothers, I'm also a person that wears the uniform with the blue. I'm also the one that gives their lives and puts their lives in danger. I wear blue. So I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it and I became so furious 
and so hurt because it bothers me when I hear people say, y'all police officers this, y'all police officers that, and they put us in this negative category when I'm saying to myself, I'm not that type of police officer. I know officers that are like me that would give their life for other people. So I'm looking at it and it tore me up because I got to see what you all see. If I wasn't a police officer and I wasn't on the inside, I would be saying, look at this racist stuff, look at this, and it hurt me. First of all, I became an officer in 1996. I grew up in the hood, so I ain't grew up in the suburbs. I grew up on 930. We moved to East Cleveland, so I know what it is. So the reason why I became a police officer was to make a difference in people's lives. I knew what it was like to have a parent on drugs. I knew what it was like to watch people be picked on and bullied on and all kinds of things. And I said, I want to make a difference. I want to be that change. So I became that change. So in 96, I took an oath in East Cleveland, sitting in front of Chief Guidance, and I would serve and protect my community by all costs. Even if it meant I wouldn't go home to my one-year-old daughter. And that's what I did. And I did it with integrity and respect. The thing that hurt me most of all was that a lot of people that I was arresting were the same color as me, that grew up in East Cleveland like me, so I couldn't understand that. Why would you want to destroy your community? I couldn't understand, I said, okay, but they're not sworn to serve or protect either. They're not, they didn't take that oath. This is what they do. So then I left there and I came to another predominantly black community and became a police officer. I'm the first and only African-American female officer in the state of pride and respect. I sat in front of Marcia Fudge and took that oath that I would serve and protect my community. And I also moved into my community and I raised my children in this community. I wear that blue uniform proudly. And I know for a fact I have five, six beautiful children that love me and a husband. I have a family that loves me. And I know there's times I may not come home from work. I have taken guns off 15, 14, 13 year old children. I'm talking about real guns. I've had to go and tell a mother that their 13-year-old son or daughter was not coming home. I've interviewed rape victims that's been raped by people that look just like me, the same color as me. We are running around killing each other left and right. But what hurts me the most is the people that stood in front of a judge and stood in front of a mayor and said, I swear my oath that I will serve and protect this community. And God, please forgive me, and you can delete me if you get mad at me. If you are white, and you work in a black community, and you are racist, you need to be ashamed of yourself. You stood up there and took an oath. If this is not where you want to work at, then you need to take your behind somewhere else. I decided to work in an African-American community because I'm African-American and I wanted to make a difference. I could have worked in Parma. I could have worked in Lakewood. I could have worked in North Olmstead. I'm a double minority. They would have got two hits for me because I'm African-American and I'm a female. I'm here because I wanted to make a difference. But how dare you stand next to me in the same uniform and murder somebody? How dare you? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. So why don't we just keep it real? If you're that officer, then no good and well you got a God complex. You're afraid of people that don't look like you. You have no business in that uniform. Take it off. If you're afraid to go and talk to an African-American female or male or a Mexican male or female, then because they're not white like you, take the uniform off. You have no business being a police officer. Because there's many of us that will give our life for anybody. And we took this oath and we missed it. 
you're wrong. I would tell you you're wrong. My heart goes out to that young man's family because if it was my son, I don't know what I would do. But to my brothers and sisters, my juvenile brothers and sisters, I am your keeper. Put them guns down, y'all. We killing each other. And the reason why all this racist stuff keeps going on is because we're divided. We're killing... Okay, it, it continues for another few minutes, but I'll stop it there. Um, so in her statement, I think Jones, uh, she makes another, a number of moves that to some degree cushion the force of her anger while also heightening its authority and impact. She articulates her commitment to viewing the Baton Rouge incidents impartially initially. She knows firsthand that people wrongly accuse officers of racism. She affirms the existence of honorable officers who do serve and protect at great personal cost, including loss of life. In a gesture of humility, she repeatedly asks God forgiveness. She repeatedly uh, offers view viewers an escape route, saying, you can delete me. Um, making moral engagement with her anger voluntary. She doesn't ever directly accuse anyone in particular. She, continue, she continually structures her argument as a contingency. If you're a racist, if you're afraid, then take the uniform off. In her most unreserved expressions of rage, she calls not for revenge, but for action on the part of those officers, officers who ought to acknowledge the truth of their moral position. What she's demanding is moral honesty, an acknowledgement of the moral significance of an oath to serve and protect, and the impossibility of keeping that oath if you have racial hatred in your heart. She asks only that openness about enmity should replace deception about service. All of what she asks for depends on moral engagement on the part of those officers. Yes, I think she does have an impulse to inflict suffering, although the, the target audience was actually her Facebook friends. She didn't realize that it was going to go viral. But it's, but it's the pain of critical self-reflection that I think that is the aim. Joan's expression of anger is, I think, an attempt in the manner of Amari to sweep the wrongdoer into the truth of their atrocity. It's a kind of Humean assertion of self, an affective attempt to make it known to the wrongdoer, you are in justice relations with me, not just as an equal fellow human being, but as an equal fellow police officer, also often in harm's way, likewise sworn to serve and protect. So my own view is that Jones's anger is not just apt, but it's also authoritative. And as, as such, I think it has intrinsic human value. Of course, the anti-anger folks would disagree with me, and they would argue that her anger, even if it's apt and authoritative, is nonetheless ill-advised, because it's not going to work. Okay, it's merely going to further alienate racist police officers, it's going to inspire retaliatory anger, and maybe even generate greater racial hatred. The anti-anger people, I think, are most likely going to say that a stance of some more kind of Gandhian compassionate detachment would be preferable on Jones's part. She ought to extend compassion and respect to her opponents while also unyieldingly standing for change. And Nussbaum is very much um, also influenced uh, by Gandhi. But my, my response to this argument would be to say that I think Joan's statement actually demonstrates that resentment, indignation, outrage, and their expression, unlike hatred, can be entirely consistent with compassion and respect for the target of one's anger. And here I turn to John Gardner. Um, 
who argues that one can respect others as persons by confronting them with the ugly truth of who they are. And he writes here, so he thought that being respected as a person would be an agreeable experience involving a warm welcome and handsome compliments. Time to have another read of your Kant. Um, of course, Kant was even more anti-emotion than Seneca, and so he would probably be in this, uh, squarely in the anti-anger camp and would call for dispassionate practice of respect as confrontation, confront me with the ugly truth as, of who I am, but do, as a, do it as a matter of duty, not as a matter of inclination. Still, I think Joan's anger can be read as an expression of respect for the officers as as responsible moral agents. I also don't read her anger as devoid of compassion. Her anger resonates, I think, with a sense of urgent fellow feeling and a desire to communicate just how morally pernicious it is to swear an oath to serve and protect from a place of racist cynicism, standing beside others who take that same oath with a sense of self-sacrifice and gravitas. There's even a note of compassion, I think, at the, for the fear at the core of racialized police brutality, an understanding of how much better it would be for those officers, how much less contemptible they would be as human beings if they would only renounce the pretense of being a protector. So I think that something very valuable, something in the way of human interconnectedness would be lost were Jones to have heeded the anti-anger call and spoken dispassionately. Of course, the first thing that would be lost is that we would never have seen her. Um, anger demands attention. Um, combined with, uh, it's also the case that you know, combined with what I think is a very powerful intellect and real rhetorical talent, Jones's anger is compelling drama. And this brings me, I think, to a very important challenge because I, I need to ask, is it the drama that appeals? Do I mistake this grippingly theatrical moment for true human engagement and what I've called the struggle for moral mutuality as between responsible individuals? Do I misread her statement as a true invitation to shared moral understanding simply because it's a moment of such striking dramatic effect? Could it be that skillful and articulate expression of anger makes a good show for the bystander, but that it actually does block moral connection to the wrongdoer? This is a complicated question, so let me um, answer it somewhat obliquely by pointing to another aspect of the call to banish anger. And here I want to turn now to Mohandas Gandhi, um, who very much sort of articulates the fact that this anti-anger project is one of spiritual self-discipline. One is active against one's angry impulses, managing and transforming them into different kinds of energies, controlling the impulse to express them. So Gandhi writes, it's not that I do not get angry. I don't give vent to my anger. I cultivate the quality of patience as angerlessness, and generally speaking, I succeed. But I only control my anger when it comes. How I, how I find it possible to control it would be a useless question for it is a habit that everyone must cultivate and must succeed in forming by constant practice. So it's either through uh, um, this kind of spiritual practice, and I think that Nussbaum views the, the control of anger also in this very Gandhian way as a kind of spiritual practice, or 
Lacey and Pickard, I think, would view it very much as a professional uh, uh, sort of a practice uh, sort of grounded in professional norms or, again, from the therapeutic profession, literally a kind of clinical self-discipline. So either through spiritual or professional clinical practice, one becomes, as Gandhi says, constantly active against natural anger at injustice. So what we're asked to do is to take our spontaneous emotional responses to wrongdoing and then either through obedience to God or through obedience to norms of a profession to flatten them. Not as Adam Smith would say, to flatten them to the point where, where the spectator can go along with them, but rather to flatten them completely. To tone it right down so that you're capable of confronting the wrongdoer with his or her wrongdoing while giving your anger no expression whatsoever. Communicate justice-based demands with all due courage but without emotion save the kinder, gentler emotions of compassion and respect. Certainly that's likely to be less dramatic, um, but is it the drama or even, is it the drama, is the drama all that's lost or is it even the main thing that, that is lost? And what I want to suggest is that even if this kind of practice of detached, more, of detached confrontation is in some sense more effective, even if it works better, it's still missing that fundamental good of that involved, engaged, fully participatory um, exercise of that core human competence of that struggle as between responsible humans toward moral mutuality. That what the victim or the spectator of injustice misses out on there is the opportunity to actualize and have validated by a moral community their core, spontaneous, let me say natural, unmediated, thoroughly understandable, apt moral reaction to wrongdoer, wrongdoing. And what the wrongdoer misses out on is an encounter with the authentic reaction of another human being who, whatever else, is respecting the wrongdoer by treating them as a human being responsible for their actions. Anger is an incontrovertible aspect of our emotional lives as human beings. Everybody considers anger to be natural. Seneca is the only one who doesn't think it's natural. He thinks that it is sort of, again, thoroughgoing anti-anger attitude. Seneca thinks that it's only natural for people who are either weak of, or of a choleric temperament. I have a little quote. These, these Enlightenment guys, like Adam Smith and, and Joseph Butler, were sort of interested in, okay, it's there, it's natural, but why is it there? What, what is the sort of proper use of it? I'm not, I'm kind of running out of time, so I'm going to skip um, this part about uh, Butler. Um, so, of course, there are risks in irreparably aiding the, alienating a wrongdoer through the expression of anger, but there are grave risks as well, I want to argue, um, in alienating a wrongdoer through this superior stance of detachment. The person who has their anger ever under control, seeking to hold the wrongdoer accountable, ever from a place of disciplined dispassion, doesn't offer their whole human being in moral relation. Of course, there may be compelling reasons not to do that but that unreserved, necessarily affective engagement between wrongdoer and the victim or the community, I think, has intrinsic value. 
All right, so now I'm running out of time and I need to look at the, the context of criminal punishment. So I think that uh, I'm just gonna sort of try to go through this quite quickly. But even if we agree, maybe you probably don't agree, but even if you do agree with me that this, that this kind of affectively engaged blaming has this kind of intrinsic value in relation, you may say, and I, and I may go along with you to say, that it still is inappropriate in the context of criminal punishment. Maybe this kind of moral mutuality isn't even a proper part, is, isn't even sort of, it, it isn't even valuable within the relation between the state and the criminal offender. But what I also think is, that it is the case is that the, the roles in our criminal justice system as they're presently structured do not sort of create viable places for anger to be expressed. Of course, so let me just sort of quickly go through a few of the roles. There are some prosecutors, I think that um, you know, we, we often see prosecutors who sort of strike a pose of anger as part of the way uh, of kind of trying to persuade, kind of trying to engage anger in that guilt phase. Um, and I think that um, that's often, you know, very problematic in part because it's often fake. The prosecutor, if they've been there for any length of time, probably isn't actually angry about the particulars of a case. And so I think that um, it is, uh, that I think that there's something unseemly about it along the lines of, of what Montaigne observes, that we don't, we don't actually want a trier of fact to be influenced um, by anger when they're trying to determine whether or not someone is guilty. And we probably don't even want them to be influenced by anger when they're trying to determine the length of a sentence. We probably also want that to be guided by principles of proportionality and consistency. Um, I gave the example of a defense counsel, but and even though I think defense counsel are often on the front lines of engaging um, with offenders as, as, the, as a, an accused representative, they're I don't think well-placed to deliver affective blame to wrongdoers. Neither, I think, is the victim within the traditional criminal justice system. The victim impact statement might be an opening for a victim to express their anger, but the structure of that statement is actually geared differently, uh, and I think is geared to avoid that. The victims are directed to tell the court about how the crime has impacted them, physically, financially, and emotionally, but the kinds of emotions that, that we're usually eliciting there are emotions like fear, grief, sense of violation, um, loss of sense of security, and so forth. Perhaps we should be more willing to see the victim's anger as a cost, as part of the impact of the crime. Um, for example, I think Virginia Woolf in A Room of One's Own writes very interestingly about how being a victim, of, about anger and bitterness and resentment as as a cost of being a victim of injustice. So she says, but what, what she talks about these bad experiences, but then what still remains with me as a worse infliction than either was the poison of fear and bitterness, which those days bred in me. It was a thousand pities that a woman who could write like that, whose mind was tuned to nature and reflection, should have been forced to anger and bitterness. So she's talking about how the sort of the creative spirit is kind of distorted and, and and destroyed by having the, the, the sort of harm of anger within you. Um, but I, I think that, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that we would want 
I don't know whether we would want the victim impact statement to look more at the victim's anger as that kind of cost, but treating the anger as a cost in that way sort of bypasses um, the question of the sort of intrinsic value of the anger as well. What about the judge? Um, should the judge express uh, affective blame in handing down sentence? This too, I think, is a very tricky question. A judge's um, expression of act affective blame can have real credibility. The offender might be receptive to receiving the moral blow of the judge's indignation, but I think here again it's hit and miss. Um, power relations make the possibility of real moral engagement remote and the risk of unseeming uh, browbeating, unseemly browbeating high. There's a sort of notorious judge in the Canadian North who flies up and sits in youth court and routinely, I mean, it's you know, a terrible situation. All these young offenders, victims of, of abuse themselves, most of them are suffering from addictions, and this judge routinely goes up and gets really angry and pounds his fist on, on the bench and yells at them and makes them cry. Well, it's, it's, completely, it's completely pointless, of course, in that context. Punishment in general is probably a completely inappropriate response to the situation. But again, the, the judge, I think, is not necessarily well-placed to deliver affective blame either. Corrections officers, I think, are probably the worst, uh, in the worst position. People like prison guards, prison administrators, educators, healthcare workers, um, probation officers, and so forth. And it may be that really what Lacey and Pickard are really talking about is these kind of correctional uh, roles. And if that's all that they're saying is that, th that people working within the prison system should not be sort of giving sort of affective blame to prisoners, then I, then I certainly would agree. I find it difficult to imagine a sort of prison employee being able to express anger towards an inmate about his or her offense in a way that's not a bit sort of twisted and abusive. Those people already hold a tremendous power over the prison prisoners. And again, I think that their immersion in that world sort of makes it unlikely that their anger is going to be attuned um, and responsive to the particular moral circumstances of, the, of any particular offender's crime. Um, so let me return to, to the sent again to the sentence itself. The imposition of the criminal sentence, whatever ever else it does, is also a communication to both the offender and society. Much has been written about the communicative function of punishment. And such theories, these expressive theories of punishment, argue that the purpose, one of the purposes of punishment is to denounce or censure wrongful conduct while also respecting offenders as moral agents. This communication of censure invites offenders to consider and accept the justification of the sentence. Um, but do we want that sentence also to be understood as affect-free? Do we want that communication to be one that is sort of one of disapprobation, but without anger, resentment, or indignation? And for Lacey and Pickard, the answer to that is definitely yes. They write, the idea of censure evokes the flavor of affective blame while lacking any explicit renunciation of its appropriateness. So they want, the, they want the meaning of this sentence to renounce the appropriateness of affective blame. And it seems to me that this is, this is really 
not right. It seems to me that, that a criminal sentence, which in itself has no flavor of anger or indignation, a sentence that communicated to the offender and the community a renunciation of the appropriateness of affective blame would be unintelligible as a form of punishment. A sentence that itself eschewed affective blame might well be intelligible as an order for mandatory treatment or as a necessary measure of incapacitation or as state-mandated re-education or training or um, socially beneficial warehousing of uh, problem-causing persons. It might even be intelligible as revenge. But when all flavor of affective blame is extracted from the communicative message of a sentence, I think that what's infused back into that message is not the flavor of compassion and respect, but the distinctively ersatz flavor of the managerial attitude. So while I've argued that anger can be completely distinct from revenge, I would also claim that the notion of desert in the context of culpable wrongdoing, the idea of deserved punishment cannot be entirely divorced from affective blame without moral distortion. And I'll stop there. other factors about her psychology. Um, so one possibility would be for sentences to actually just reflect the amount of uh, affective blame that's actually felt by the judge. Another possibility would be for a judge to somehow consider how much the right amount of affective blame is, even if they feel that they're a bit on the low side or high side. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that, that sort of contingency. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think that, as I said, it, does, it seems to me that you want the sentence to be calibrated to an idea, to, to you know, principles of proportionality and consistency, right? So, so this, is, this is obviously why bringing in the emotions even at the level of the victim impact statement, always poses a real threat to the rule of law, right? We, we don't want it to be the case that, ah, this judge has been there forever, they've seen it a million times, they don't, they don't feel any affective blame, so pff, it's a light sentence, right? I mean, we, we do actually want that, I, we want the, you know, to the extent that, it, that a, a prison sentence or, or whatever kind of sentence is justified, we want it to, to be measured against, I think, you know, uh, the, the old theory of the punishment fitting the crime. We want it to be proportional. So I do think, but, but then once that's been decided on the basis of, of those principles of proportionality and consistency, because we do want it to be consistent, I mean, I do think, I do think that this is a problem with victim impact statements. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's a problem in a couple of ways. I, I think that there's a problem with asking the victim to perform their, their, the emotive impact, the emotional impact. But I also think that, that there is a problem with distorting the sentence. I mean, Aristotle is, is really interesting. I mean, the, the rhetoric starts out, in the rhetoric he starts out by saying that a judge who allows emotion to influence his decision making is as effective as a carpenter who uses a warped ruler. 
you know, he, that's, that's on page one. And then sort of the rest of the rhetoric is like, okay, now here, here's how you get the judge to use emotion. It's all like a how-to manual for lawyers about how to, how to, but I always think that those rule of law concerns are there. Go to your example of the defence counsel. Yeah. So I'd suggest that what he's doing is, I don't know whether he actually needs to denounce the offenders he's dealing with and just defendant, but what he is doing is maintaining his moral compass by his own emotional yeah. regulation. Mm -hmm. And so I'd suggest that <clears throat> maintaining his rage is also probably what allows him to keep on being... Um, Competent and, dare I say, compassionate, he comes from the same place. So whether or not he needs to do what he does and tell them exactly what he thinks of them, it's important for him to do what he does to do his job well. That's, uh, that's just a very interesting comment. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, I just thank you for that. I think, yeah. you're, I think you're probably right. I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit more about you know, minority groups using anger versus privileged, you know, groups using anger. For instance, in Australia, we have a really strong tradition of, um, I don't know if you heard of the Cronulla riots, for instance. Yeah. Um, you know, angry, privileged white men um, rising up, you know, in ways that you describe, um, spontaneous, morally engaged, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, kind of ways to act where they see the state as not having acted in their interests. And that's frightening. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. just wondering, I mean, I agreed with all your examples, but that's because she's a black woman. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. she suffers from, yeah, injustice. Thanks. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a very, very, there's a very good article um, by Amiya Srinivasan called The Aptness of Anger. And, and in it, she talks about the way in which subject position is actually often used as an argument to disqualify anger, right? So, oh, well, she's angry because she's a woman. She's angry because she's a black woman. She, you, you know, um, whereas, you know, the, the, the anger, um, the sort of, the, the anger coming from a position of privilege is seen as, you know, maybe more valid. And of course, I mean, it's interesting when you look at when you think when you look at Seneca. I mean, Seneca thought that being privileged was really the thing that would make you angry all the time, right? Because you, because as a privileged person, you expect you're always expecting um, everybody to fall into line with what you want. So therefore, you're you're often much more sort of reactive because things are contrary to your expectation. Whereas if you if you are in this other, you know, sort of um, one down subject position, you just assume everything's gonna go badly. So you don't get as angry. So Seneca was, was but I mean I think that um, I mean I, I think that how we read people's anger is really often sort of shot through with how, you, you know, what we sort of, exp with all those kind of stereotypes and so forth. So I haven't really said very much about your question, but, yeah. Thank you. I, I I've also found your presentation really interesting. Um, I actually work in the judiciary and uh, 
I was interested in what you said right at the at the end. Um, who is going to yeah. express the emotion? Um, certainly, I I agree with you that it is inappropriate. I think for judges to do that. Yeah. Um, I think it, the um, you're not just expressing a personal set of feelings about someone's behaviour. And uh, so who is going to in the courtroom situation? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think that there is, within the courtroom situation, I don't know that there is an appropriate role that makes space for it. I don't think that there is. But I do also, I mean, as I say, I'm just kind of repeating myself, but, I, but you know, I, I, um, I mean, it'd be interesting thing to ask judges whether, you know, when they sort of come down with the sentence, whether the hope is that the sentence itself does express, does speak for that, affective blame, as I say, sort of does speak for, for society's indignation. I mean, I, I don't, I, and I, again, like, I think that if it doesn't, then I, then I think there's some kind of moral disconnect with, with viewing that as punishment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in Baby Judge School, if I can put it that way, you, you're given a, a a set of principles which you're meant to apply. One of them being, as you rightly say, is denunciation of the crime. So in, um, in relation to serious matters, serious crimes, you would, you would say that. This is a very serious crime because A, B and C, whatever the, the factors are, um, these are the aggravating features, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a, there is a, a technique of, of doing that. But I... I I must say, I've never th thought of it as um, expressing uh, affective blame. Well, I suppose it's blame, but it's yeah. not angry in that way. Thanks. Interesting. I uh, I was talking to this to a friend of mine who's a judge on the on the uh, Human Rights Tribunal in Alberta, and she had just decided a case where she made a, you know, with a really egregious facts, and she made a, a finding of a, a big sort of uh, punitive damages. And she was saying, I would never, I would never want anyone in the courtroom to know that I was angry, but I really want that $50,000 damage award to, to, to be loud and clear that we're angry. Hi. Um, I wondered about the relationship between the society and the victim oh, in this, um, because we seem to be collapsing those things, but I can uh, watch that video. I can be extremely angry at black people being shot by the police in America and uh, as, a, as somebody who's not affected by that in a personal way at all, but having been a victim of a violent crime where the offender went to prison, I wasn't actually that angry at, at him. Yeah. You know, I didn't feel, yeah. that's not my, yeah. my set of emotions. And so who, whose emotions are we talking about here? Is the victim in society the same thing? And if we are uh, making a distinction between those two things in a legal context, which one should get precedent? Yeah. And I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. And I think that, I mean, to some degree, you might want to say, okay, part of what you want, part of what you want in the sentence and part of the way you want to conceptualize crime is to say that, that when someone hurts one person, they hurt everyone, right? And so, and so that's part of what's 
Um, that's part of what we're trying to do with this idea of the crime sort of speaking for uh, for the indignation of everyone. I mean, I think it's, it's kind of an interesting distinction. The usual distinction between sort of anger and resentment and, and indignation, on the other hand, is that the indignation is the emotion that you feel not on your own behalf, but on behalf of someone else. And often it can be very much more intense. But I think that, you know, and, and another thing about the sort of, that kind of vicarious anger, um, that vicarious indignation, is in some ways, I mean, in some ways when I view Joan's statement, I think part of, part of what she's also doing is also speaking to the indignation of the rest of the world, right? And validating um, in, in a way that I, I find very healing the way that she, from, the, from within the position of, of the police force, is validating the indignation of, of the community, and I think that, that I think that that maybe. I mean, I've said that it's that, that her anger is important in relation to the offenders, but I think it's, it's also plays. I think that it may be that that's not who she was actually speaking to. That she's actually speaking to the 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 rest of the bystanders, um, and and that that her. Anger has an important role in, in sort of healing that indignation. 